Sam and I share an appreciation for a good anatomy joke, pun or play on words. You could say we find them rather humorous. I know, anatomy jokes are corny, but jokes about the eyes are even cornier, right? A perhaps more subtle and niche inside joke we use is to ask a student what the function of the spinal accessory nerve is. And when the unexpected student shrugs their shoulders and tilts their head unknowingly, we exclaim yes, exactly, and walk off. The punchline of course being that is exactly what the accessory nerve does. In perhaps one of the easier podcasts to date then, let's explore cranial nerve 11 in greater detail. Let's cover etymology, the course of the nerve, clarifying the confusing bits we see in textbooks, and some clinical relevance for good measure. A trophy for anyone who knows what happens to shoulder muscles when this nerve is damaged. The accessory nerve, or spinal accessory nerve, is the 11th cranial nerve, or CNXI to give it its Roman numeral expression. Now as cranial nerves go, this one has a fair amount of discussion and debate in contemporary literature, and some of this debate is to discuss whether it's a cranial nerve at all. One of the original cranial nerve descriptions was by a chap called Galen, who has probably the best job description ever, physician to the gladiators. Now he described cranial nerves as being nerves that left the ventral surface of the brain. And this is a bit of an issue for this cranial nerve. Historically, the nerve was described in two parts, a cranial part that had multiple rootlets leaving the medulla on each side, and a spinal part that had multiple rootlets leaving the cervical spine. They both joined together, looped in through the skull and then left again, which is a pretty good description of a cranial nerve. However, contemporary literature now groups the cervical part largely with the vagus nerve, and the spinal part is now called the spinal accessory nerve. This means the spinal accessory nerve doesn't originate from the underside of the brain, and therefore, by Galen's definition, cannot be a cranial nerve. For this podcast, it doesn't really matter so much. Let's just talk about what is contemporary thought of as the spinal accessory nerve and where it passes to and from. So beginning life leaving the cervical spine, multiple small rootlets join together to form the spinal accessory nerve proper. The right and left nerves pass into the cranial cavity through the foramen magnum, or the big hole on the underside, and the nerve then leaves the skull again via a hole in the ventral surface called the jugular foramen. From here, the nerve passes into the posterior neck where it innervates the muscles that it needs to. Now, the key take-home here is the two foramina which will be listed in most textbooks. In through the foramen magnum and out the jugular foramen, almost doing a loop-de-loop of sorts. Okay, on to function then. As we alluded to earlier, the function of this nerve is to provide motor innervation to two muscles, the sternocleidomastoid muscle of the neck and the bulky trapezius muscle of the shoulders. You have two sternocleidomastoid muscles, a left and a right, and they are the big muscles that are responsible for allowing your head to turn left or right, depending which contracts. If they both contract, you can nod your head by flexing the neck. Now try finding this muscle. Turn your head to the left and feel for the muscle that is contracted. If you feel where it passes to and from, you get its amalgamated name denoting connections from the sternum, the clavicle or clido as it's called here, and the mastoid part of the skull, which is posterior and inferior to your pinna. You likely already know where the trapezius lives. It is the big muscle forming a trapezoid shape, draping down from the skull, down your neck and down your back. 
The trapezius allows you to shrug your shoulders, it stabilizes the scapula or shoulder blade, and it is a very big muscle that is vitally important for upper limb function. Some clinical relevance to finish off then. As with everything corporal, the accessory nerve can be damaged by all the usual culprits. Penetrating trauma to the posterior neck, tumours compressing it along its route, and perhaps what I see it most commonly is post-surgery. There is an operation called a neck dissection in which the lymph nodes are removed from the neck as a treatment for cancer. On occasions, the cancer may be so advanced in the neck that the nerve, along with all the other tissues on the one side, may need to be removed, which we call a radical neck dissection. Now this leaves the patient with shoulder girdle weakness and sometimes pain on the affected side. There will also be impaired head turning due to weakness of the sternocleidomastoid muscle, but the most obvious sign is something we call a winged scapula, where the shoulder blade sticks out due to the weakness and atrophy of the trapezius muscle on the affected side. The biggest impact this will have on the patient is difficulty in raising their upper limb above their head. This movement recruits many muscles, one of which is the action of the trapezius to rotate and stabilize the scapula. Now give this a go. If flexible enough, place your left hand behind your back and on the tip of your shoulder blade. If you're unable to do this, then get someone to hold your scapula for you. Now try placing your right arm above your head without moving the scapula and no cheating. It's really tricky, right? And this is what patients with an accessory nerve injury will suffer with, the inability to rotate the scapula due to weakness of the trapezius. And that is a brief summary of the spinal accessory nerve. We stated the nerve innervates two muscles, the sternocleidomastoid and trapezius muscles, both of which allow you to non-verbally display confusion by shrugging your shoulders and tilting your head to the side. We explored how the nerve loops in through one hole in the skull and then out the other to get to the posterior neck. And we mentioned that because of this tortuous route, it can be injured, causing difficulties affecting the neck, shoulder girdle and upper limb. We also discussed the controversies regarding historic versus contemporary discussions, but we didn't get too embroiled in those. We will work our way through the other cranial nerves in due course, and I suppose at some point we should cover the cranial nerve that provides parasympathetic innovation to the heart. I suppose the fear with this is, of course, covering it too vaguely.